gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, re- the episode 15, the review episode for Friday, uh, March 21st, 2014. Welcome to the spring equinox. There's a time of fluffy bunnies and chicks and uh, kittens and time for sexual the silent awakening. duck <laughs> and lots of other terrifying <sighs> things and fly fishing. I wouldn't want to hear the uh, quacking duck. Well, you're going to have to hear the quacking duck oh, as boy. we review. Oh, no. <laughs> As we review Nymphomaniac, Lars von Trier's, I don't new two movies or one movie, and you're not allowed to talk about just one of them, depending on <laughs> who you ask. We may or may not get into David Ehrlich's pedantry about this topic, but we are talking about both parts. They are now both available on VOD. I rented them on Amazon, like anybody else, so everybody can watch both parts of this movie right now. And I think we'd all agree that it's worth it actually which I, I mean not that I was going into this as a hater but I was kind of skeptical by how much I would recommend this to people even though it's kind of a uniquely unpleasant viewing experience which I guess all <laughs> Montreal movies are to some did this, degree. Did this movie fill all of your holes as, oh they, as uh, Joe honestly, may say? That is workplace sexual harassment. <laughs> uh, well I mean I, I uh, David wants I to will... say yes it did. Well, I, I, yes, of course, this movie filled all of Katie's souls. No, I, uh, I think that this, uh, that line in particular, as crass as it might sound, when you, when Patches says it, of course, is uh, I am a bard. There's an article forthcoming at this point when we're recording this article, very, very long. I would not uh, be surprised if most of you couldn't get through it that I wrote for the Dissolve about how that line is sort of at the crux of everything that Lars von Trier has always tried to do and how Nymphomaniac is so important to his filmography as a whole because it focuses how all of his movies are really ultimately about the, uh, the loneliness of, of the human Body. And I think that that line is really uh, the uh, sort of serves as, uh, as the film does as a whole as a codex of his entire filmography. Uh, and that is one of the reasons why I found Nymphomaniac to be such an invaluable experience. So you're saying that only having seen all of Frontier's previous movies was what gave you the value out of seeing it? <laughs> Uh, not at all. I, I actually, you know, of course I couldn't speak to what it would be like to see this as a newbie. Somebody asked me earlier today what Von Trier film they should start with. And I was really at a loss. I, I said, ultimately I said Melancholia just because it seemed hmm. like, um, it, it starts, you know, rather beautifully. And I think, uh, the first act is somewhat traditional. I, I would don't know, say I think breaking like, the waves. That would be really my pick. Yeah. I just want to like break people and then uh-huh. go in like hyper stylized uh-huh. and then, Nymphomaniac is such like the pendulum swinging in the opposite direction from Melancholia. So I feel like well, Breaking the Waves is... Uh, well, I think that like, you know, regardless of where you start, I do think that Nymphomaniac, all of the Joe, the character that, uh, the titular Nymphomaniac that Charlotte Gainsbourg plays is sort of the, uh, not the summation of all of Lars von Trier's characters, but sort of their gestalt. I mean, uh, she is in a way representative of uh, the platonic ideal of a Lars von Trier heroine. Did you truly set up the film in, in, at all? Oh, sure. I thought you were going like, to tell us what a Lars von Trier heroine was. But I, <laughs> well, think you, I think set up the film and tell us 
about Joe and why it makes. Yeah, way to miss the natural segue. I know. I I, I felt it. I felt it getting away from me just there. But (laughs) we'll double back. Uh, Nymphomaniac is uh, a film. One film, absolutely. Make no bones about it. That is split for commercial purposes into two parts, uh, understandably so, because it totals in its theatrical form about four hours and 20 minutes. Um, it's a story of a woman named Joe who is played by Stacy Martin as a uh, teenager for most of the first part, and then uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg in her third uh, larger and film as an adult. And the movie starts with Joe being sort of a pulpy, beaten heap of a woman in an alley where a man named Seligman, who's played by Von Trier regular Stellan Skarsgård, happens upon her and brings her into his home where he tends to her and she relates to him her entire sexual history uh, and what led her to that point. So most of the movie is, which is broken up into eight chapters, uh, as is sort of no, not the eight necessarily. Oh, it's a Fibonacci number we learn in the film. <laughs> is <laughs> uh, is. Uh, as per Von Trier tradition, broken up into these distinct chapters, she relates to him her journey from discovering her cunt at the age of two, uh, which is we learned very early on. And uh, those who are uh, sensitive to language may want to avoid both this episode and the film as a whole. <laughs> Although, to be fair, the shots of the two-year-old are not at all sexual. Do not worry about the exploitation of children. Uh, Right. There's at least well, one thing you're spared from uh, in an environment. Stacy Stacy Martin, who is certainly over 18 when she filmed the movie, is made to look a fair bit younger for. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, she starts everyone, getting it on at like 15 and, or everyone 16. Everyone having sex in this movie is an adult. Let's just right. And there's a lot of very accomplished digital masking of uh, sexual behavior. Stacy Martin is on record as saying that uh, she had no part really engaged in anything below the waist on film. But if you saw the movie without knowing that you would certainly believe otherwise. And I saw the, I, I saw, I saw both the extended the theatrical cut as well as the extended cut. Um, and even in the extended cut, it, it's just very seamless. Uh, they very seamlessly, they added digital, the, the lower halves of, uh, adult actors were, uh, digitally overlaid. It's this over year's the, gravity. <laughs> well, I mean, I think this is a, it shows in some ways, uh, it's sort of a, not unlike what David Fincher does with special effects a lot of the time. A lot more of the utility of how I really hope I really hope we get one of those YouTube videos that like pulls back the green Shows screen. The and it's like back <laughs> yeah. and forth between real shots and fake shots. <laughs> Unlikely. Anyway, uh, Joe has had quite the experience. She's had uh, you know she uh, had uh, interesting sexual experiences as a child. Developed a sort of. Uh, disinterest or adamant dislike for love as a teenager. Uh, by the time she was in her late teens, was having eight or nine sexual partners a night. She has a reoccurring romantic encounter with a guy named Jerome, who's played by Shia LaBeouf with a very unplaceable, to be kind, uh, Cockney accent. Uh, <laughs> this is one of those films, like a lot of Vartrier's films, that are set, that is set in um, sort of this a vaguely European void. It's hard to say when or where the movie takes place, but yeah, I think part of the point is that it's impossible to pin down. Uh, and she, she, yeah, in her entire adult life, she becomes an adult in the second half uh, after she has a child. Uh, spoiler alert, I guess. She becomes Charlotte Gainsbourg. And we go from there. Uh, but someone take it away from me here. Well, I guess, I mean, you've kind of done a good job of describing exactly what the plot is. And kind of. I, well, I think what's important to realize in that I think a lot of reviews said, but it's hard to know until you see it, is how much of this movie is the conversation between her and Stellan Skarsgård. Like a lot of movies that are trying to, you know, using someone telling a story as a framed story are going to really 
undercut. I think of Life of Pi and how you've got that scene where the guy's telling his story, but you don't really think about your fun con. But Stellan Skarsgård and Charlotte Gainsbourg as a storyteller are a really big part of this movie there. And, and there are long digressions about fly fishing and about Bach and about religion. There's a whole chapter called The Eastern and the Western Church because that relates to something he's telling her. And I mean, I guess, spoiler alert again, there's a point at which he like tells her the reason he's digressing is because he's asexual and he hasn't had sex. And that's what he can relate the world to. And there's it's basically at all the points where you think it's going to start getting into like, oh, here's where the sex scenes are. And I'm just imagining all the people renting this movie on VOD being like, oh, yeah, Nymphomaniac, that's going to be hot. And then they're going to <laughs> see Stellan Scars are talking about fly fishing. And well, I think I would that's imagine, very much the point. I would imagine those people are probably unfamiliar with Lars von Trier and yes. his particular sense of humor. Uh, and I... You know, could have told you, as I think anyone who is sort of uh, a fan of his work could have told you, from the moment we heard the title of the movie, uh, you could understand it would probably be one of the least sexy things that he had ever made. Well, don't you but, think that even the VOD release pattern is, like, imperfectly fitting with Lars von Trier's sense of humor, where he's like, oh, yeah, go ahead and find this on your VOD listing and have no idea what it is about. Like, they don't even have to go out in public. They think you're going to watch it at home, and then it's going to be... The well, it's not maybe. the canyons. They're not really promoting it that no. way. Uh, <laughs> they are. It, it, it actually has been strange to watch the promotion. I think that's an entirely different conversation that has a lot less to do with the movie than it does uh, how what the movie exposes about current VOD models. But I do think what you were saying that is very crucial, uh, especially for people who haven't yet seen the film who are trying to steal themselves for it, is that uh, the conversations that she has with Selene Skarsgård are not simply adornment. They're not simply a framing device. They are every bit as crucial to what the film is trying to do as the as the uh, the meat of the story, so to speak. Well, yeah, can, uh, we, can we talk about that a little more? Because I've seen people react to Volume 1, which has been out for a little bit, um, kind of calling it didactic. It's on the nose. It's over-explanatory. It's simple. It's, it's kind of stupid. Um, but for me, and I think I've brought this up before, I'm a big fan of Daniel Quinn's Ishmael. And this kind of conversational Socratic dialogue just about philosophy and mythology and ethics and all these conversations, kind of how all of life can be summed up through these different topics of discussion and just having those discussion and how important it is to talk through those things and be obvious and make obvious metaphors to kind of relate everything. And for me, that's what those conversations end up being, except the theme here is sex and how all of life is encapsulated by it for this one individual. I, I think it's, I mean, this is a movie about philosophy for me. It's about talking through all these points and seeing sex in everyday life all over the place uh, like well, in the fibonacci, fibonacci sequence you know <laughs> it, it's an interesting war of attrition between joe's staunch literalism and seligman's penchant for metaphors and i mean he'll bring uh metaphor and he's, anything that he's written in one of the books in his vast library because this is effectively all he does we see we understand very early on that he lives sort of a solitary lifestyle whose uh greatest adventures are to the jewish bakery around the corner and back uh, that you know, it's he every for every experience or anecdote that Joe relates to him, he is ready with a metaphorical or uh, an, uh, you know not anecdotal but uh, hi historical or literary uh, reference to apply to it, uh, and it's sort of working through the thing that's sort of at the crux of all of Lars von Trier's films, as he said himself, even though he's not necessarily the most trustworthy source when it comes to Lars von Trier, is the battle between nature and the mind, uh, and sort of how sex is going to forever be the uh, the lightning rod sort of between the two, where people are always going to be struggling to divine where one ends and then the other begins. And so I think that 
it's certainly wrong to look at the movie, and I think misses the entire point of the film, if you look at it and say that uh, the digressions with Seligman are sort of the refractory period between the, you know, the lusty, sexy bits that, oh, that yeah. Joe is relating. Patches, why do you, like, why does the philosophy of this movie work for you? I mean, not as opposed to anything else, but like, I don't know that I came out of this feeling like I was intellectually engaged hmm. as much as I was just kind of curious about what was playing out in front of me. And I'm curious about what about this struck you being like, yes, this is an interesting philosophical argument. Well, I think because sex can um, mirror or, or reflect our experiences as we grow up as people and all these different challenges that we encounter, especially psychologically. I mean, if you're going through depression or what lust means to one individual, uh, especially in the beginning of the movie, it's very funny. It's very candid. It's about awakening. Um, but, you know, by the time we get to the end of volume one and young Joe is sitting there being like, I can't feel anything anymore. I think, I think the movie becomes, it's, I, for me, it's a lot about sex, both in film and media and pop culture, and also about how that kind of influences us and how we feel overly sexualized in our everyday lives. We have this pressure on us and how much we have to drive ourselves to feel stimulation and, and have a successful life, whatever that means. Um, and there's a lot of pressure on Joe to to mellow out, to become a normal human being, to kind of fit into the norm sexually. And that's just not how people are made. Everyone is an individual, and sexuality defines that. And we live in a world that can easily try – I mean, it can stick square pegs into circle holes, fill all the holes, you know. Um, <laughs> Ew. Uh, but but I think that her journey, especially when she has outbursts in um, her her group help circle thing, telling her, you know, we, we got to get rid of this sexuality. Take everything out of your life that's sexual so that we can kind of dilute your life and, and boil it down to an, the normal human being and continue on. And she realizes and she has an outburst and says, no, you know. I like my cunt. I like my dirty and my sexuality. filthy, dirty lust. Fifth, yeah, filthy, dirty <laughs> lust. I think it's a great line. I mean, that's such – it's an expression of ownership. And, like, when she has this conversation, you know, when she becomes this kind of um, fixer type, that's the only position she really has in the world as the that's individual a, she is. Interesting digression. Yeah. I'm, I'd be curious what you guys think about that, that turn. But I do find it fascinating that she encounters this guy who is a pedophile who has never actually acted on his impulses as a pedophile. And she feels sympathy for him because they are in a similar position. She wants to have sex with everybody and everywhere and all the time and he is also trying to repress his sexuality because he is cast away i mean is it any less valid what he wants to do he just knows that in this society it's it's not allowed and that's a really tough issue and i think that it's easy to write off when the conversation surrounding nymphomaniac has been all about lars von Trier embracing sexuality and pushing it to new extremes um and here i mean it's he's kind of laughing in our face with that he's 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 pointing his finger at us and saying, by having this conversation, you are the problem that I'm focusing on in this film. I'm, I'm curious about where you get the pop culture reflections from this, because I don't really see it as being about like Puritan Americans and how we don't we can't handle depiction of sex in anything. And I, I don't see it is being that external. It seems much more a specific character study of There are a few film references. Person. There are a few 
references to the media. Um, you know, I most recently watched volume two. So what's on my mind is this explicit reference to James Bond. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like there are a few things trickled throughout that really pulled my mind in that direction. I mean, I definitely think it trends towards the universal more than anything else is to sort of just being about loneliness as a whole. And I think that uh, certainly one of the most resonant and insightful bits in the film is what Patches was saying, the sequence with the pedophile where she's going through all of these fetishes. And it's sort of a microcosm of the film as a whole, which has this whole index of sexual experiences. And it's like, what's going to make your dick hard or, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, And I think that that is... A really interesting scenario, and I think that definitely points to how um, demonized sexuality has been in a whole as a whole when it's a sort of like naturally human thing. But I think, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know where we we're going with this. So what Patches was talking about a few minutes ago, but the, <laughs> I was uh, rambling. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I do definitely think that this is ultimately a story about human loneliness and the fact that she. I mean, what it really boils down to the most pivotal scene, even more so than I think that like. You know, fill my holes could be uh, could be the name of Lars von Trier's memoir or a book about oh god, his I hope he named film, it film uh, about his body of work. I think that the most important scene of the film actually happens in part one, and it's when she is um, digressing, as the film often is, uh, and talking about her loneliness. She talks about her loneliness, and the film immediately then segues to her having a memory about being a child and having surgery. And that moment that I certainly found relatable when she had been given the drugs, but they hadn't quite taken effect yet. And she saw the nurses and doctors preparing for the operation. And she felt like she had to pass through this sort of gate in order to have this operation become healthy again. She felt completely alone in the universe and to, to ground the idea in a certain reality. Lars von Trier then, in his most literal film, as he is wont to do, uh, cuts to a shot of the cosmos – um, which is sort of remembered in the second part when he dissolves from a shot of her vagina to a shot of the human eye. Anyway, uh, it's, I mean, I think that's really what the film is about, about how, you know, for all of the interpersonal, often sexual relations that exist between people, we're all ultimately cloistered in our own bodies and ultimately alone and looking for that sense of fulfillment. Um, and how, unfortunately, the, you know, the, again, his most literal film, taking being inside of someone, uh, I think, points back to why he always has female protagonists for the most part um, and sort of the narrative advantages that they offer uh, and not in a misogynistic way, but just in a way that's helpful for him to express his pet themes. Um, why sex is ultimately not the greatest expression of human interconnectivity, but rather the cruelest expression of its limitations. I have a question for you. I I want to piggyback off something David touched upon here. I'm curious what you both think about kind of the literal images that are always crossing or being cut into the film, um, either overlaid, which when Shia LaBeouf is fucking Joe for the first time, we see like how many times he thrusted into her uh, missionary style, and then he flips her over and does her five times in the butt. Um, and we see those numbers kind of like adding up in her head, and they're overlaid on the screen. I thought those, I thought those very interesting and relatable to, or connected to when they're in the your conversations. Age thrusts, your, your... <laughs> My own thrusting history. Um, <laughs> no, but connected to we see fly fishing, or we see the cosmos, or we see these really obvious images that I think 
are making some people kind of shrug and be like, why is this so literal? But how do you think that plays into the themes of sexuality here and the identity? It feels like the world trying to make everything literal and maybe that we need to veer away from that. I don't know. What do, what I do you think? I feel like it felt like her making everything literal because of the kind of disconnected from emotion way she takes sex. Like she can count the number of thrusts and she can kind of evenly divide these men she's sleeping with into this one is the bass note and this one is the leopard. But it's and- not just her. It's also Lars von Trier using those images. He's, that's a stylistic touch. He's, he's cutting sure. away I mean, deliberately in these moments. You can say that he's trying to put us more inside her head, but it's also, I mean, I, I thought about like, he was kind of cheaply referencing, you know, instructional videos in school. The way that we learn about sex is in these really weird videos that use every metaphor, but what's actually happening to describe what's actually happening in sex. And that's really interesting. I don't know are you thinking, are you thinking of the, um, the three panel, the triptych? Uh, the fugue oh, or that's whatever. The, the triptych that's... diagrams, like the diagram of the car parallel parking. Mm. Oh, that's actually... That's I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that, you know, that is the after the Fibonacci sequence where it's like three pumps, five pumps. The most diagrammed bit is her parallel park in this car. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's definitely a parallel, you know, no pun intended, that's drawn between the two where we're looking at the, um, you know, the obsession that people bring to the former, you know, the sexual experiences, whereas Seligman could not be less interested in her story about parallel parking the car and how it reflects on Jerome's masculinity and so on. Um, and so I definitely thought that was a, an interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think they bring Seligman and, um, Joe together as kind of these two different examples, two different ways that humans can fixate so dogmatically on two incredibly different things. Like there's nothing, less exciting to most people than fly fishing but for this one guy it's the mo- it's more exciting than sex and the idea that both of these people are kind of taking it and programming it and studying it when maybe that's not a healthy way to approach either of them and i thought that was i mean i argue with you patches that it has a lot of pop culture significance but i did think those diagrams were a way of kind of von Schur thumbing his nose at the clinical way that most people regard sex and how for Joe that's kind of an evidence of her disease. Well, I think von Schur is is opposed to all rigid forms of morality. I think that anything that is too fixed in a sort of moral response is uh, repugnant to him, which I think is part of why he was happy to play into and in a way engineer the whole scandal at the Melancholia press conference because – I mean, I, I think he he knew that simply mentioning the Holocaust and Hitler and whatnot uh, would get a rise out of people uh, who would take this very hardline stance and not consider the wider implications of what he was saying or his particular trolling nature or the fact that he played uh, – cast himself rather as a uh, very gaunt Holocaust survivor in Europa in the early 90s. I mean like there – I think that he gets a rise out of – of preying on the worst of what he sees in people by giving them enough rope to hang themselves and and then just sort of enjoying them dangling there. The question I wanted to ask you guys earlier, and this is more me playing devil's advocate and partly asking a question because I think a lot of people take Vontra to task for the extent to which he makes women suffer. And I mean, this might get into spoiler territory about what happens near the end of this movie, but I think Joe suffers an incredible amount. And there's a part where Sally Man tells her, like, Ed, because you're a woman, you are, have to suffer for this more. Own your sexual urges. But this movie does punish her. It does kind of really show her in pain that and it's, that's definitely out of order to her crime and 
I wonder why, like, why does it, why does it need to end on that? Why does that need to be what we're left with in this movie? I don't know that I see why Joe. Well, needs what to crime? She does. What crime does the movie? What crime does the movie ultimately charge her with? Yeah. I mean, I think that she is insistent that she yes. created a moral transgression, but uh, I don't think the movie um, – I mean, that's part of the, the discourse of the film, but I, I certainly feel like that is not a uh, punitive charge, that, the, that at any point the movie thinks that she did something wrong. I don't know that it does, but it does punish – it does make her suffer immensely. Well, it it denies – I mean, we're talking about the very end of the film here, which I think is yeah. hilarious. I like – confirms once and for all after trying to uh, distract you for most of the second part that this is absolutely a comedy and a very funny one at that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think the last the oh, last 45 seconds of part two are genuinely hilarious uh, in a very Lars von Trier sort of way, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that she she thinks that she has sort of made this connection, this this friendship and learns that <laughs> may not the have been the case. The world is darker than she could well, possibly imagine. He was giving, you know, Seligman was giving her a lot of lip service and not necessarily taking everything he said to heart. Or maybe he was, but it just the reality of the situation um, eluded him. But I do think that she, uh, I, I think all of Lars von Trier's films have a something of a happy ending to them. <laughs> and I think that this isn't an exception. I think that she at least better understands her loneliness by the time all is said and done and is probably for the best that she is not spending another night there. Wow. Well, I I don't see a happy ending in this. Really? I mean, I think that by the end, I mean, I think well, can we go there? I we can go there. People have seen this movie You'll be spoiled, maybe. Um, because of, of the Seligman's fate at the end of this film, don't you feel like he is regarding her as a slut, even though she has explained her case as someone who is kind of plagued by nymphomania, or at least an individual who lives with this burden, and that's who she is, and she feels like she he, she's been heard by well, someone understanding, and yet he still regards her as a slut, as so many people would, and... You know what? She's not. So, boom. Seligman ultimately becomes not Lars von Trier's target audience, but the audience he knows is going to see and react to this movie yeah. for the most part. He mm -hmm. becomes seduced by the uh, lurid details of the story, the, the way that people like that Jezebel article by Lindsay West are reading the movie at its, its most superficial level. And he, even though he is an intellectual guy, is clearly very intelligent and well-read, and he reacts to all this stuff in a very cerebral way, is still ultimately sort of given into his craven desires and, uh, and doesn't really hear the message of what's happening. And I think that's sort of Lars and Shears rejoinder to the audience that he knows he's going to encounter but is not necessarily aiming for. Um, but I think that the, I think we as the action, and there's a reason like, like they, they often have a sort of a dialogue with the audience. Like when she is making fun of him for his worst digression, uh, and in a few other instances, she uses the royal we and sort of in a way that feels like she's reaching outwards to the audience. And and a lot of the time we are uh, actively reconfiguring our relationship with these characters who are we siding with who are we are we the judge or the jury or the, the victim like what's happening mean, i think it's all very present in in the movie um but i think that it, it ends in a sort of an absolution of judgment i think you know it starts in blackness as it 
ends in blackness. And as she runs away and, and Lars Venture is having the last laugh at all these people who are so quick to impose their own codes of morality onto this and their own, their own judgment. Um, I think that she, you know, it's an unpleasant night for her when all is said and done, but I think that she at least has her life and her freedom and the perspective of having shared the story with somebody at such great length and, uh, will be better for it. Well, Katie, okay. I really, I really need your feminist take on this as, as a woman, oh, I mean, man. having experienced the whole thing, I mean, that was one of my problems with a lot of the responses to, Volume one, you know, David has made a, a very strong point in public forums about how perhaps we shouldn't be reviewing only volume one because there it's one single film. It is Nymphomaniac. Uh, I think it's valid to at least respond to volume one in a critical way because it's been put out that way. But my problem with a lot of the reactions to volume one is that they're t- they're takedowns. They're they're calling it lazy or they're they're worried about the sexual representation or the the feminist representation in this film as faux feminism or something like that. And yet volume two contradicts as the the Jezebel uh, article that David mentioned earlier. Um, volume two totally contradicts all those points. Uh, so I'm really curious, Katie, your point what do you of view. Think, what do you think volume two specifically contradicts? Well, I I think when the girls are on the they had this discussion about the girls on the train, um, and if those had been two men, would anyone have damned them, or would anyone care that the two mm-hmm. men were doing this? And I think that's a very valid point. And with a lot of what she's doing, if uh, if a man was in her role, is there any problem with that, or is that what James Bond is? Is James Bond a nymphomaniac, and he's a, a no, debonair in his Bond role? James Bond isn't suffering for his sexual desires the way that Joe is. But I he's not suffering he's... because he's a man. Well, I don't know that he's not suffering because he's a man. James Bond is not driven by his sexual desires. He gets his job done. He can accomplish things. He can carry on work relationships in a way that Joe can't. She is completely... Except he fucks every an, woman that he meets, even yeah, at work. Yeah, but she is an addict who is not at all in control of her addiction. He can get shit done in the process. I think that's But she's main. not, as she says, she's not an addict out of need. She's an addict out of lust. I don't think that's... And, I don't think we're supposed to agree. I mean, I'd, maybe well, we're supposed to agree with that, but I don't think that she's right. I, I would certainly... ruining would, her life at the expense of her addiction. Oh, well, yes, but I, I would certainly agree with you that she is much like Frontier himself, not to be trusted. I mean, she said things at several junctures in the film which are uh, I would flat out disagree with her own self-diagnosis but um, I do I, I think I think patches overall just to go to the overall point of what he's saying about how s- the second part contradicts all the first part is is spot on I mean I think that the in sort of a rise and fall story sort of way I mean the first part up until the very last you know 10 seconds is all uh, the good times is, is I think if you were only to see that and judge it on, on what's presented there and we're not willing to engage with who, uh, this is a very altruistic movie that I think, uh, is largely informed by the persona of the person who made it, obviously that, um, you know, you would say it as like this, this very sort of fantastical male conception of female sexual, sexual mania, but. I think the, the second part is very uh, – it's very critical in in when she loses her orgasm and her sort of sexual feeling to, to plumb deeper things. <laughs> and I think that it, it does it certainly – if the point is that there's no – there's no value in reading what someone has to say about only the first half of this movie, I agree. That is your point. <laughs> I don't know that any of the rest of us were arguing that point. 
Um, maybe to close on the feminism question, because I do. No, like wait. Well, I want you to respond to that, but I have one more inquiry okay. for you. Basically, I don't think it matters if Lars von Trier is a feminist. I don't think he cares. I think, I mean, David was saying that there is a larger reason that he uses women as his primary subjects, which I think we can get into another time. But I think there are reasons to make this character a woman other than even the conversation she has with Seligman about how she's more judged for this than if she were a man. And I think watching a woman suffer sucks, but I don't know that it sucks because Lars von Trier wants to see women suffer in particular. I think that's just the way that he wants to tell his stories. I think it is an interesting movie. I don't think it has anything really positively feminist to say, but I don't know that that's the point. I don't I don't particularly care that it's not a Well, it's feminist. not like an empowering feminist film, no, but it's, it's about not. it's about the female experience and how it's degraded by men and how the two are not equal. Yeah, but it's not really a realistic story about the female experience and how it's degraded by men. Like it's not any, in any way represent representative of most female experiences. Well, realism is, is no, and uh, that doesn't matter. Like, I don't think that it needs to. And I think that's where I kind of don't care about applying feminist criteria to it. Cause I don't think the realism of it or how much it has to say about actual human experience matters. Yeah. I just, I think that Lars von Trier is, uh, has a lot of fun with, convincing people or letting people be convinced that he's interested in notions of feminism. Uh, but I really don't think he gives a shit. I think that uh, female characters are a conduit for him to explore his own personal obsessions and are very convenient for him narratively. Uh, but I think that this is, is really um, it, it's really ultimately about the same things that all of his films are about, which is about sort of the loneliness of the human body and being entrapped in, in that and wanting to get out or bring someone in and just desperate to uh, be bigger than yourself and the futility of doing so and finding, you know, that's why I think Melancholia, which ends with everyone melting together in an apocalyptic bang, is far and away the happiest ending he's ever made for a <laughs> film. Uh, and and I think that he had a great laugh when he titled the movie Melancholia and knew full well that it would be his most uplifting movie. Um, so, I mean, that's the kind of guy that Lars von Trier is. And I would encourage people to see Nymphomaniac, A, period, and B, through that filter. Um, uh, just to wrap up, uh, we've talked a lot about the thematic um, push, the, th- the thematic thrust of this yeah. film. <laughs> um, but there's so many actors, there's so many vignettes, there's a lot going on performance-wise and craft-wise. I, I wanted to talk about it very briefly on that level. If there's people who stood out, are, are these good performances? I mean, is this is Stacey Martin's first movie. Is she is she someone who will make more movies, perhaps? Uh, it's great casting, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, like, she kills it. Uh, Although a lot of people really... say that the casting is ridiculous on purpose, which really? I think is an interesting claim. That she doesn't look like Charlie Gainsbourg? I think that's mostly a Christian Slater comment. Oh, well, oh. I, think, I think Christian, I mean, Christian Slater's chapter, and this is a movie that I, I love, but I, I will say that I think Christian Slater's, Christian Slater's part of the chapter, chapter four, Delirium, where he is dying, is a bit, it's a bit extended, and in the extended version, there's even more of it. Oh, uh, yeah, and I think that there are very important things that happen in that chapter that have to do with Joe uh, uh, disengaging with what's happening with her dad, but I think overall Christian Slater does a fine job, but I think Stacey Martin is like could not possibly be better in this role. I don't, I, I don't feel equipped to 
guess how she would be in other roles. I don't know what her range is like or anything like that. But uh, and then Uma Thurman in Chapter Three is amazing. Um, she, she's really amazing in yeah. that scene. And Charlotte Gainsbourg is is you know exactly what you would expect from another Charlotte Gainsbourg Lars von Trier film. Although I think this is probably going to be their last one together. Why? Because um, I think that according to at least what Charlotte Gainsbourg said, uh, they've sort of done all that they needed to do. <laughs> there's no more. I mean, it seems exhausting. Yeah, I mean, there's, I don't know where else to go. For her, uh, I don't know where Lars Winter goes from here by himself, um, but I also think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think they've done they've done what they need to do. I think that everyone, I think Shia LaBeouf is very silly. His accent is very silly and all over the place, but I think emotionally, in a way that's not entirely dissimilar from how I reacted to the characters in The Great Gatsby by Baz Luhrmann, his, his movie of it, um, it's silly, but it plays into the emotional foundation of what they need from the character and works in that regard really well um but i yeah jamie bell who we were talking about before we started recording has a has a significant part in the beginning of part two and i think is very very good for what he does um you yeah, could say the same for willem dafoe and everyone else i mean i don't think the I jamie think all bell the actors- especially i just wanted to hone in on that for a second like some you know he doesn't have a lot to do in the movie but Playing cold and maybe emotional under the you know under that facade, I think, is a very complex, challenging thing to accomplish. He does a yeah, very good job at it. He's playing a uh, is it a dominatrix or what do you? Whatever he's playing, dominatrix. It's a weird, it's a weird character who really shouldn't seem like a human being, but he does seem like a human being, even though he's doing things that you can't imagine a person actually doing to somebody else. Also, especially as their job, it's his job. Yeah. He, like he's at work. Yeah. <laughs> and he's him. very, and he knows he's at work. Yeah. Uh, also, is that's Willem why he has Defoe the quiet playing, duck. Is Willem Dafoe playing the same character that he plays in the grand Budapest hotel? Yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> he seems a little bit, uh, he, he, there's like a little kindness to him in, in nymphomaniac. Like he, he <laughs> he's kinder in nymphomaniac than he is in grand. Budapest yeah. Hotel. I mean, that he is, <laughs> He understands that, like, he levels with Joe. He says, you know, for her benefit, he's like, you know, you can't be doing this forever. You're getting up there, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, he talks to her like a human and not like, you know, so at least that can be said for him. But, uh, you know, I don't think you get a performance. Like, Lars von Trier became, you know, when he finally sort of broke through with Breaking the Waves and, and hit big at Cannes and all the rest, he was known for these incredible female performances that he got from his lead actresses, from Emily Watson to Bjork. Uh, and uh, the woman who was in the idiots, etc. cetera. Uh, and I, I, this isn't really quite the performance or the, the, the actor show, showcase that his previous films were, but I think that it's a really phenomenal ensemble, and they all, they all are on the same page. I Udo think Kier was great as the waiter. Udo Kier is hilarious in his one <laughs> scene. That is a great scene. Uh, it's very, Udo I Kier think, as the waiter. That's the kind of scene where it's like if you forget who made this movie, if you somehow can forget who made this movie and have lost track of what it's trying to do, that that scene reorients you very quickly. Wait, which scene now? I can't even remember. The, what when they're in the restaurant and she smuggles. She oh, she puts the, the spoons in her spoons, vagina. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. We've all done that. We've all been there. <laughs> and Udo Kier got his own character poster as I the know. waiter for his one. <laughs> I forgot about that. Lars von probably just wanted a poster. Of the of Udo Kier's O face, so knew he had to cast him in the movie and just wrote oh, that. Udo Kier's like his good luck charm. No, he I shows know. <laughs> up in all, all these strange places. Uh, um, so Nymphomaniac, you can rent it now. Don't watch it with your family, but you know, watch it 
when you can I don't know, it's not even a sexy movie, so it feels weird saying that, but just don't, don't, don't watch, watch it alone. Don't watch it with people you don't know well, at the very least, because there's lots of I don't know if I'd want to watch this with people I know very well. Watch it alone with your cat. Oh, that's I, what I did. I did not watch it alone. I had a very, uh, nice horrible Muppets Most Wanted. I mean, wow. a movie, I'm just like, every second that goes by, I'm angrier at this movie. Uh, I'll tell you all about it later. Um, what, Nay, what is your favorite movie that involves puppets? Patches, what was your pick? Oh, well, I didn't know. I was going straight to me. I don't usually I thought you were going to say Muppets Most Wanted it. until you really went off on it. Yeah, no. Uh, least favorite, maybe Muppets Most Wanted, tied with 2011's Muppets for worst puppet movie. Uh, I'm actually going to go with a good Jim Henson Productions film and go with at ATL Greg 1, who said The Dark Crystal, um, which I forced all of my hallmates freshman year of college to watch, and they never... They never talk to me again. But I really love that movie. It's such a weird fantasy. I think they've made like spin-off comic books since then and such a strange little movie. It it was it was very suitable for a strange little boy like me. I think I watched Dark Crystal my freshman year of college. The Skexis. Hallmates. Uh, David, what's your pick? I'm gonna go with Jordan Banesh at Jump Jordan Jump, who says Forgetting Sarah Marshall because it's getting kind of hard to believe things are going to get better. Wow, you know? that was. Why couldn't the whole movie be that? You <laughs> specifically good. singing it. <laughs> things going to change. Man. And if I see Van Helsing, I swear to the Lord, I will slay him. Ha ha ha. That's was that movie. Jason Siegel's peak? I guess maybe Lady L. On Freaks and Geeks was his peak. No, I don't know. forgetting I don't, Sarah Marshall is definitely. His I peak. hated forgetting Sarah Marshall. What the fuck is wrong? You hate Jason Segel. <laughs> I don't Marshall like most Jason Segel movies. Up masterpiece. What? Interesting. It, wow. it is. I've seen that movie probably a hundred times. Oh yeah, cable. I forgot to ask you if um, what's better, Nymphomaniac or Forty uh, Year Old Virgin? I thought about that while watching it. <laughs> what if Seligman were played by Steve Carell? <laughs> oh, that would have been great. And it ended ba- with an Age of Aquarius dance number? The ba- bag of sand. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, I am going for another person who said Team America because you stole the other one. Mario Allegra said Team America, of course, because, man, I don't know. That movie, like, I thought, I think that I was, when I was in high school, I thought, like, I was too good to, like, Team America. And every time that I have caught it since then, it what? is... Uh, it is dumb. Were you and just brilliant. snobby or super snobby? Oh, I yeah. see. You know, Bill Pope shot that movie. The f- the guy who shot The Matrix. Wow, that's what yeah. you need to capture marionettes. I'm <laughs> sure marionette sex. Yes, he also and directed it... Cosmos. Fun fact: oh, the new Cosmos. Or yes, the, the new Cosmos. Cosmos. Oh, I love the new Cosmos. We should talk about that. Rattling off. Uh, There's Bill name Pope dropping trivia. all over the place. Oh yeah. 
Um, that does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back next week reviewing Noah, I guess, if any of us ever get to see it. We'll so. see it. We'll definitely see it. They're they're hiding it a little bit, but I think... Uh, I'm, I'm remaining positive. I don't think they're hiding it because it's bad. I think they're hiding it because the religious right is going to go ballistic when they see this movie. I think they're hiding it because it's weird, and I like that because it's a Darren Aronofsky <laughs> movie, and I want it to be his movie. His movie. David, why do you think they're hiding Noah? His capital H? <laughs> I think yes. it's they're hiding Noah because it's probably a fucking nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly uh, less positive. I'm well, shocked. Uh, well, we'll find out next week when we review the movie. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. Yes, I am Matt Patches, writer on the internet. I can be found on Twitter at Mr. Patches. I try and put all my writing at mattpatches.com. And I very quickly wanted to say um, something I forgot to say during the review, which was, David, you reminded me that Stellan Skarsgård's character is named Seligman. And I did a little Wikipedia research right before we podcasted about this guy, Martin Seligman, who is an American psychologist who uh, established this line of thinking called um, Learned Helplessness. Uh, which Encyclopedia Britannica calls a mental state in which an organism forced to endure aversive stimuli or stimuli that are painful or otherwise unpleasant becomes unable or unwilling to avoid subsequent encounters with those stimuli, even if they are escapable, presumably because it has learned that it cannot control the situation. If anyone thinks that's related to Nymphomaniac, I would love to talk about it. Wow. Boom! That is uh, how I feel when seeing Zack Snyder movies. Helplessness. Um, I'm David Ehrlich. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. And if you just listened to this episode, uh, I think it won't be up until Monday the 24th, 22nd, yeah, the 24th. Uh, but I, you should find me on The Dissolve writing about a very, very long <laughs> essay about my unifying theory of Lars von Trier and some other stuff I wrote for them. Uh, I don't know where else my writing will be in the future, but that's where you can find it for now. And I am Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Like a on the street, you